0: Hi, I'm Steve Moletto from the Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Do you want to just start out by introducing who you are and what your background is and how you're connected to early childhood?
0: Sure. Um, So hi, my name is Denisha Jones. Um, Currently, I am the director of the Art of Teaching Graduate teacher ed program at Sarah Lawrence College. I'm I'm also a faculty member there and we do a dual degree in early childhood and childhood education in New York State. Um, I started out as a kindergarten teacher um, in Washington DC. I did my undergrad at the University of the District of Columbia in early childhood education always wanted to be a teacher, always wanted to work with really young children. Then I started teaching and realized, wow, a lot of stuff we're being asked to do doesn't make sense. Like prepare five-year-olds how to bubble on a test. Um, so that was kind of setting my first year. DC was going under a lot of reform from the new I'm chancellor, and so I went to grad school and worked on my doctorate, and I I worked in preschool, and that helped a little bit because the pressures weren't as bad in preschool as they were in kindergarten, but it was also less pay, bad hours, all of the things that keep us from making a life in preschool education, Um, but I also started teaching college while I was in working on my doctorate, and I really liked that. I liked working with undergrads in the in the field, and 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 so I continued to do that. I um, I was a preschool director in California also at a community college and then kind of returned to D.C. and started my career in teach- in higher ed, working at Howard University, um, another college in D.C., Trinity Washington University, and now here at Sarah Lawrence. So, um, And it, it's interesting, like, at the university level, early childhood keeps coming and going. So, like, I've been doing a lot more elementary ed. I do research in early childhood, but also in social studies. Um, and so I do a lot. But, but it's mainly because a lot, it's hard to just make your career in early childhood at the higher Ed level, because the numbers are always so down, right? So I've seen colleges do away with the early childhood program and it forces me more into an elementary focus. But at heart, I am a kindergarten teacher (laughs) and really excited about young children. and then I guess in a, it was around 2017, I got involved with what is now the Black Lives Matter at School movement. Um, there was a group of educators in, in Philadelphia who kind of like put together this, this curriculum. They're like, here's our week of action, Black Lives Matter at School. And it was really exciting. I'd never seen anything like that before, like a Google Doc with all these resources, and thought that was really cool. Um, and kind of convinced them to present at a conference that we were organizing, um, Free Mind, Free People. Um, is a conference that happens every two years of part of the Education for Liberation Network. And it was going to be in Baltimore. And I said, oh, well, you guys are in Philadelphia. Let's get you on the program, right? Let's get you a workshop on what you guys did so other people could come. And they did. And a bunch of us met and heard it. And we kind of signed our name on a piece of paper. And the national movement was kind of born. Um, And so our first week of action nationally was in February of 2018. Um, And so I've been fortunate to be working both locally, first in D.C. and now in New York City, um, and nationally, being a National Steering Committee member of that work, um, um, which then led to a book. We wanted to share our stories each each week across the country. So many teachers were doing all of this really important work around the movement, around the principles. And so I reached out to one of my colleagues and said, hey, we should we should get a book on this. And he agreed. And we went to Haymarket. And um, we got teachers across the country who were doing the work and students um, to really write about the movement. Um, and so that book came out in December of last year. Here and it's been really inspiring to see how many people are are excited to get into this work and as an early childhood person I was delighted that we had I was able to bring in the voices of early childhood teachers um, because I thought that was really important as well too.
1: Yeah and I think it's great because it's so good to have a perspective of somebody who has an early childhood background when you're doing things like this because it's such a unique space And all of us who work in this space know it's a unique space. And so sometimes you're like, well, I wanna use this resource, but it wasn't made for me. So I don't know how. So I'm so glad that you've you've done that work for us.
0: Yeah, and it was actually uh, my colleague, Lelania Garcia. That's like what she talks about in her chapter, right? When her colleagues went to free mind, free people, she didn't. And they're like, let's do this at our school. Let's do Black Lives Matter at school. And the first thing she did was look at the materials and say, all right, I got to make this make sense for the little ones, right? Because it wasn't very much right. The principles came from a statement of the Global Black Lives Matter Network. It's not currently on their website, but this was their original statement where they said, you know, these are the principles. This is what we believe. And the educators in Philly thought it was important to tie that in, right? That we weren't just proclaiming this week of action without grounding it in anything, right? So we had these great principles, things like empathy and loving engagement and restorative justice, right? But the language, right, doesn't fit well with a five-year-old or a four-year-old. So that was the first thing she did. And I remember it was so great. We just got this document. It's like, New York teachers have rewrote the principles for young children, right? And that was Elena's brilliance. And that's how I knew, like, this movement is going to be with young children, right? And the teachers of young children and the parents of young children. And so that was really important. And so it set the tone that, you know, even the lessons are coming out and they were still, they kept saying elementary, but they still weren't early childhood. And we continue to do that work, right? A lot of us in this space really adapting the lessons and the discussions for younger children. And so um, it was, it was really nice that that was done. And I think it's helpful. And so, um, and it's evolved into like a coloring book and other things that have been really helpful to show that we will really want to set this foundation with, with the young ones and then build up, right? hmm
1: Can, can you talk a little bit about what the guiding principles are and what they look like in an early childhood space?
0: Sure. Um, So there's 13. And so um, they start with um, loving engagement, empathy, restorative justice, diversity, globalism, um, let's see, uh, trans affirming, queer affirming and collective value, uh, Black families, intergenerational and Black villages. Um, Black women and unapologetically Black. Um, So those are the main principles. And so then we have a sentence that kind of explains it. And I have these posters behind me. Um, Oh, wait, I forgot people can't see. (laughs) Um, And so we have have these visual posters that You can see them. We have these visual posters that um, we have like kind of like a resident artist. She's also in New York City, Karen Karen Davidson um, is a high school art teacher. And so she made a lot of the art on the posters but she also has her students making art on the posters. Um, And so they usually have a sentence or two that kind of explains the principle. What I really found interesting. So, in addition to having Lalania in the book, I'm also interviewing her for some research on how early childhood teacher teachers in general, but I'm also looking specifically early childhood teachers, like how they're using these principles um, in their work. And one of the things that I always love that she talks about is how, as an early childhood teacher, these are all the principles you want your kids to have, right? We all know empathy, right? Loving engagement, restorative justice, even the other principles that I think are, are you know, some of them are upsetting for people. They don't know how to do it in early childhood, right? Like trans affirming and queer affirming. It sounds really tough, but the language is really simple, right? Like everybody gets to decide. This- decide who they are, and some people are this or that or neither, and we just respect people for who they are. And everyone gets to decide who they love, and love is love, and that's it. It's not this big, complicated talk about, you know, things that are not appropriate for five-year-olds, right? The same way that we talk about mommies and daddies and families, right? We don't talk about sex and sex organs and all that stuff. It's the same thing with little kids around this, right? But it gives them that language, right, to understand why we're saying things like that. Um, And even, I think, some of the other principles, People don't know, right? This is what I, when I work with my students all the time. And I said, well, let's look at black villages. What do we know about black villages, right? And so that's a, for me, it's an entry point to really think about what do you know about black people and black community? And, and, and then in thinking about, okay, what do you need to add to that? Because most of us don't know much, right? Like we have a history of understanding black history through three lenses, right? Enslavement, civil rights, And then like the post-civil rights heroes of today, right? Think Michael Jordan, Obama, Oprah, right? So it's very much this single story that we know is problematic because it doesn't get into the nuances, right? And as children, they learn, they don't learn anything positive about Black people, right? Like a lot, I remember teaching kindergarten and I'm like, okay, so I get it's Black History Month, but why are we talking to five year olds about enslavement? You do know that's not developmentally appropriate. It's not, like, why would you start that with the history, right? It's very much like, and my colleagues looked at me, like, what do you mean? I'm like, that's like American history that I think they get when they are older, <laughs> but that's not what we should be giving five-year-olds, right? I, so what are you doing for Black History Month? I'm like, we're studying black inventors, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's a nice topic for five-year-olds. We're talking about black people who've invented things. They got to practice inventing stuff out of recycled materials, right? It's that kind of idea, and so I think these principles are pushing that. So we look at something like black villages, right? What do we know about black villages? Not much. So what can we find out, right? About this collective community and how uh, black people have come together and support each other, right? Some people might learn about the Tulsa uh, massacre, right? But that's that's what happened to the village. We still don't know about what Tulsa was, what was Greenwood, what were they doing there that led to that massacre, right? So it's really giving children this positive foundation and information about Black people. So when they get to the history, they can build upon it, right? Like you don't want to start with that negative history. And so um, Black families, right? As we know, the media portrays Black families in very deficit thinking, right? So now we're asking students to say, no, let's think about Black families and all all the different types of families that they come into, like other families, right? But really highlighting this because we know there's all these narratives out there that are damaging about Black families, right? And so we want to change that. Um, Black women, right? And how important it is to center Black women um, in our understanding And, and it's important For young kids to get that too. And then even unapologetically black, which I think a lot of people um, feel some type of way about. But again, you know, black pride is something we do want to instill in all children, right? Especially black children. And I don't think we realize how much school doesn't do that and how damaging it is, right? Like, I went to predominantly white schools in New Jersey. And I spent a lot of my life trying to not be Black because I thought that was the only way to be accepted. And I didn't have pride in what it meant to be. I didn't even know what it meant to be Black. I didn't have pride in it. And everyone's like, well, you should have got that at home well, my mother was an immigrant from Panama, raising five children by herself. And she also didn't understand what it meant to be Black in America. Because in Panama, she was Panamanian. (laughs) It wasn't until she got here that she was Black first, right? That was a big part of her identity in America. So she didn't really have a lot of answers. Because she would tell me, I don't know, this country's weird. That's all she would say when I would ask her about issues around race as a young person, right? And so you can't always rely on the family. And schools need to affirm, you know, a positive racial identity in all children, right? And I think that's what this movement is about, right? It's it's helping Black children see themselves positively in the classroom, but also other children need to see Black children positively in the classroom, right? And, And that's what I hear from the teachers who are doing this work. And that's why I think the principles are so important because let's stop thinking that we need to start teaching Black history with these bad narratives, right? That just leave, you know, people thinking about black people in inferior ways. And let's start from a positive place. And, and I know that's not out there really, right? I've been in, in teaching for almost 20 years now and I know it's not out there because we've never, you know, we've never had it before. We do have anti-bias and that's a great foundation for the work in early childhood, right? But it doesn't really get into issues that are on race and power and identity and that sort of stuff. So I think this is building upon that. And, and really challenging people to think about the, the, the classroom's role in positive racial identity development for both Black, White, Asian, Latinx, Indigenous, multiracial, biracial, right? It's for everyone, you know? And, and so that's really the goal. And I think there's a lot of research out there on why it's important, too.
1: Yeah. Um, in in a, your other video, which I'm going to link, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that study with the kids and the dolls and which yes. dolls they preferred playing with. Um, and I think most of uh, people listening know that study, but, and, and then you shared another example about uh, a kid who chose the brown crayon, I think to color their picture. That was me. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just thought I, well, while you were talking, I was thinking about how I always try to present my students with um, crayons that represent a wider range of skin colors, but they don't choose them. Like I've never had a class where when they're coloring a picture of a group of people, they choose the big range. And I would love to get to a place where my kids choose all the colors to represent families and people and communities because I'm not there yet. Yeah, that's a really
0: interesting point. I haven't thought about children choosing colors you know, to, to do in that diversity. But yeah, you know, I was I was a young kindergarten student drawing a picture of my favorite president. And I, at that time, I didn't know any better. And I went with Jefferson. Um, and I was minding my business, coloring my picture when, you know, little boy asked for who got the brown crayon. I was like, I do. And he kind of looked at my picture and was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be coloring your favorite president. I said, I am, it's Thomas Jefferson. And he was just like, we've never had a black president and we never will. And I was just like, Thomas Jefferson's not Black like George Jefferson? Like, that's in my mind thinking, right? I think that's probably why I picked him because we watched the Jeffersons a lot and I was like trying to make this connection and I just, he sounded Black to me. But I remember that was the first question I asked my mom when I got home and I said, this boy said we've never had a Black president in this country. Is that true? And again, her response was, yeah, it's true. I don't know what's wrong with this country, right? Because <laughs> she really didn't have a good understanding herself, right? Um, so it was very interesting. But think about all the things that he knew in that moment. He knew that what I was doing was wrong. As a young white child, we were the same age, we we're in the same classroom. He understood that me identifying a president as black was wrong because there were no black presidents. And how did he know that? I didn't know that. How did he come to know that Right, as a white child? So there's a lot that children are picking up and making sense in the world. No one needs to explicitly sit down and tell him there's never been a black president. He knew that and he understood that as a white child that he could say something like that and that it was true and valid at the time. And so I think that speaks to how children grapple with these things, right? And so when I think about one of the teachers in New York City, who's a white kindergarten teacher and doing this work, you know, in our our interview, she talked about how You know, she was nervous at first, right? To like say these things to these kids, say Black Lives Matter and have these conversations. And it's like the kids look at her like, duh, like, really? Like, this is not (laughs) a surprise, right? And so it made me think, but yeah, I I think what happens when we get out of this early childhood space, right? We give all these children this beautiful foundation, love everyone, accept everyone, all the things, right? But we have to recognize that doesn't get supported in the real world, right? So so they're getting all this utopian, life is great, be a good person, and then the real world pushes up against everything they're hearing, right? And so how important is it gonna be for those children who are saying, duh, now, when they get older and they hear someone say something and they're like, no, I had a white teacher who told me these things, right? And they have that frame of reference to push back on what they're hearing. A lot of kids don't have that frame of reference and that's what this is giving them, right? We know that the world is gonna try and tell you differently. Society's gonna try and tell you, right? Um, and they're gonna have that. I'm excited to see, I really wanna do a longitudinal study and track these kids as they grow up because I wanna see like how did they, you know, when they're third grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, like how are they thinking about these issues of race and difference and equality? Um, and it had this, had, had this stuff really helped them kind of grapple with that as they get older.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's why we love early childhood, right? Because it's utopian. <laughs> we all want to live in the utopia of early childhood. Um, I have a question about, um, do you have any suggestions for, because te- you mentioned the white teacher who was afraid to start doing it. Do you have any suggestions for people who feel that way? Like, I'm not sure how my community is gonna respond to this. I'm not sure how my peers are gonna respond to this. I'm not sure if I have the tools and am capable of doing this. Do you have any suggestions for people who who are there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, first I want to recommend um Lelania Garcia, who I can't stop talking about, their book that Karen Davidson did, the Black Lives Matter Principles book. It's published by Lee and Lowe. It's a coloring book for kids, but on the website for Leon Lowe is their study, their like study guide to go with it. And so they write this out to like parents. They, Lelania's written out like a message to kids and a message to parents and to teachers. So I think there's a lot of information there. So I definitely want to point. Um, Your listeners in that direction. Um, But yeah, I think it's important to really have sit down and have an honest conversation about why you want to do this. Right. I think just walking in and doing it and saying, you know, we're doing this. I I believe it's important. It's right. Without getting people to talk about it is problematic, right? So one of the examples in, in our, my edited book, Black Lives Matter School and Uprising for Educational Justice, um, another preschool teacher, Makai Kellogg, writes in about her chapter, and her experience and about bringing her team along. So she's a preschool teacher in DC at a private Quaker preschool. Um, she was also like their, their uh, multicultural curriculum person. When I met her, she was on sabbatical, like, learning more about multicultural and race issues to bring into the work with young children. Um, so she was gung-ho, ready to do this, and she started to get pushback in that first year, and it actually didn't happen, right? And so when people hear that, they're like, oh, must have been white women. No, she works in child care, and as we know, unlike the teaching profession, child care is predominantly made up of women of Black women and women of color, right? And this was older Black women who were didn't understand what black lives matter had to do with early childhood they thought it was sitting kids down and talking to them about police brutality at four and they had every right to be like that's not okay because guess what that's not okay right there are ways where you have these conversations so so what we did the second year i came in and i met with all the teachers and the director and i and i just we talked about well where did this movement come from right how did we get going why are these principles why are we doing this and they were like oh okay that makes sense let's do it right so So you do have to have this. Not everybody's on the same page. Not everybody understands. These thirteen guiding principles are great, but there's not like it's not like it's been around for a hundred years and Black people have been talking about. Right? This was an organization trying to put out a statement on what they believe and what their mission was about. And we believe that this is something to ground. Right? Um, In my research, I'm calling it Black cultural knowledge, which we don't have a lot of in the in in our curriculums. Right? So it's a really positive foundation, things to build upon. Um, And it actually makes corrections to, to some of the previous civil rights movement, right? That weren't inclusive of queer identities and trans identities, right? So it's trying to like be more inclusive in that sense too. So you have to start and have a conversation with people. What are the principles? Why are you doing this? Right? And so when people say, well, what should I say? Why? Why? They say kids don't know this. First of all, the research is clear. Kids understand a lot. They make they they understand a lot about race and and and, con- and they make they build constructions of what it means in their mind and, and often that doesn't get challenged right. So as we know, children make assumptions about things and it just it just stacks into things that they believe. And if we don't say anything, then they go on thinking that right until it's challenged right. And so we know how children construct knowledge and that happens right. But the research is clear: children notice skin color, um, they notice hair, they notice textures. Um, And they're quick to recognize people's belonging to them and outside of them, right? And who they think is family and not who belongs. And, And then also we have to remember the process of socialization, right? And so children are constantly being socialized and bombarded with different messages along with what they think they know about people, right? So it all plays out. And so part of the, why are we doing this is again, there's a goal I think in early childhood should be the positive racial identity development. A lot of people might not know what that, that is even a thing, right? <laughs> so, I use a book in my class that I just start stopped teaching called um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Daniel uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum. And she's a, a Black psychologist who's been studying um, this idea of racial identity development in, in both Black children and white children and other groups as well, too. And so I think what she talked about is really important is that there is a process for racial identity development and it could go good and it be positive or it could be negative, right? For both black and white children. And we want them, like I actually talk about how this is gonna help white children develop positive white racial identity, because that is the thing. And people ask me all the time and I refer to the book because she talks about it, right? But it's kind of, it's like this idea that you kind of understand what it means to be white, recognize the issues within whiteness and white supremacy and kind of make a choice to to not go along with that, right? And so, and I get for a lot of parents that this is not what they're used to, right? It's not what they were like when they went to school. And they're a little nervous about their kids coming home and saying, oh, mom, that's racist, or don't say that, right? Like, but here's the thing, the world is changing. And and you want your children to be able to succeed in this world. And kids who are not able to understand race and identity and, and, and be socialized against racism are gonna suffer down the road, right? I know we think it's, you know, we're gonna, it, it's just, it's not sustainable to build a world where people are not culturally competent and not able to have these, especially as diversity and globalism keep happening, right? Children are gonna be in more and more diverse settings, right? And they're gonna be at a disadvantage if they don't know how to relate to people who come from different races, right? And so it's partly, I know it's different and it's and it's, it's scary sometimes, but it's good, right? It's, I keep, help to tell people how good this is, right? I see kids coming to college, right, and working at a university and the students who are kind of culture shocked because they've never been around diverse people, they they struggle, right? As opposed to other students who this is not a thing for them. They're used to it. They have diverse friends. They do well. They get, they survive in that environment. And so, partly, it's preparing them for this this world, this global world that is saying, you know, we're moving away from from systems that 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 keep people oppressed, right? We're trying to get out of that, and really letting the kids lead the way in that. If we prepare them young, they're going to take this no problem. They're going to handle it, right, across the world. We've never had. You know, we don't say black lives matter. We don't hear young children saying, well, all lives matter. That's not how their mind works, right? (laughs) They don't think like that. They think, duh, of course, black lives matter, right? Why wouldn't it? And then you start talking about, well, why do you think we say that? And then we talk about, well, and sometimes it feels like their lives don't matter, right? And so we're asking people to think about what can we do as a society to make sure this happens? And then we can think about other groups, right? It kind of, up it's not just focusing on just black, right? You start there, but it builds a foundation um, so I think it's really important for, to have that conversation with parents and teachers and communities. This is not about hating white people. It's not about making white people feel guilty about being white. There's no, there's no goodness in that. There's no point, right? It's really about helping everyone develop a positive racial identity development. And we focus on, on blackness because most of us in the movement, some of us are black, right? But because we know that that's an important place to begin. But that was one of the things the director asked me at the school I talked to. She said, well, what about other groups, right? We're really diverse. What about when parents come to me and say, well, what about our group and what about this group? And I'm like, I think they have a right to say that. And I think that they can plan their week of action around that group, right? But this is February, this is Black History Month, and we're asking for a week, right, to really think about that. And now we're actually asking people to think about it throughout the year, right? These principles don't belong just in one week. How do you integrate them up the year? But like these movements are connected, right? We are intersectional with people who are trans and people of the LGBTQIA community, right? We're also intersectional with um, with Black people throughout the diaspora and other people of color, right? Linking our our calls for people who are oppressed a- around the world. So it's like this idea that you start listing up one, and everything else is going to come up as well too. And so. I think the discomfort that adults might feel is because, and Elena says this all the time, we're all about five years old when it comes to talking about race. Unless you do this professionally, right? Like, we're all about five years old. So a five-year-old can handle a conversation that's made for five-year-olds. An adult <laughs> is having a hard time taking this in. We found that high school teachers actually like using the younger kid language for the principals. with their high school students because it's, it helps them to get into it and then they get into the older language right so everybody needs to start so let's sit down with our adults and take them back to their five-year-old selves in their childhood and remember that and start building from there and and you know and we're like yes you didn't learn this I didn't learn this when I was a child when I was a young person and and there are problems with that and it would have been nice and you know and also listen to the black children today that's my last bit of advice to um a school district in New Jersey we were working with I said why don't you get the children the students right at the high school to talk about maybe do a survey or something like why do they think this is important because there's this disconnect between the parents who think that doesn't happen at our school (laughs) and the kids who are living it and experiencing it right and I think it needs to and it's what we need to remember it's like it's a small minority of people who are who are passionately trying to keep the system the way it is and are okay with a certain amount of racism, right? They're not the majority of people, but there's a lot of people who don't feel emboldened to speak up to them. And I think that's one of the benefits of this, right? Like it's the other white kids can be like, well, actually, no, that's problematic. And I wanna be able to like say like, no, that's, I don't agree with that. I don't think like that, right? And give them the space to also push back. And then lastly, you know, there's a lot of recruitment of, of you know, white supremacists and white nationalists of young kids, right? There's a lot of reports of them, recruiting them in um, online games and all types of spaces, and I don't think we're paying attention to that. We're out here trying to ban critical race theory, which is not taught in um, schools because it's it's hard. Like I learned it in grad school. It's still really difficult to understand. It's It's a theory for research. It's not something we teach little kids, right? But they're out here trying to ban that, but no one's talking about banning the recruitment into neo-Nazi hate groups of white children. That's a problem, right? And, and we know that's happening and we want to protect them from that. We want to arm them. So there are lots of good reasons to why this is important, but mainly you just have to sit down and have these conversations with people. And at the end of the day, I, I say, you know, people. Well, how do you deal with the resistance? Look, it, it's two types of things. Either I get that this is uncomfortable and you're not sure, and maybe you're still a little weary. That's fine. Can you step back and let us move forward? Anymore? Can you trust us to just go through the process? that person we can work with, right? And they need some time, they'll get through it, they'll have questions. But if you're just an obstacle, if you're just gonna be an obstacle, right? Then we gotta figure out how to get around you. So I think you gotta figure out what kind of resistance do you have? Do you have people who are just unsure, need some support, you know, have questions? That's okay, it's natural. But, but if you have someone who's just like, absolutely not, I don't care what you say, then you have to think about going around that, right? Because that's, that's an obstruction that you can't deal with. And so I, I've seen a lot of people you know, there's pushback, but they keep moving forward and people change their mind. And and I'm just waiting for the kids to be like, mom and dad, calm down. We want this. Like, we know that this makes you, because I know there's some kids out there who are like, it's not a big deal, mom and dad. Like, it's okay. We can handle this. And I'm, I'm hoping that this will give them the space to speak up to.
1: Well, I just got to say, I would love to be in one of your classes because I've enjoyed listening to you so much. Yeah. <laughs> like you're a vivacious presenter. I love it. Um, and we'll link to the book and the coloring book and the um, activity or the, the guide that goes with the coloring book. Um, do you have any other materials to suggest or any like final thoughts?
0: Yeah, so all of our lesson plans, and we we curate our curriculum committee curates a bunch of lessons and activities. They're all on our website, they're on a Google folder. Um, please check them out. Check out the early childhood lessons in particular. If you have ideas and want to submit some lessons, so um, you can email us at black lives matter at school. Too at gmail.com um, and send us and we can add you to our curriculum committee. We're always looking for early childhood people who want to help write more lessons. And, and you know it's it's a labor of love. We all do this out of our out of our free time that teachers don't have. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you want to connect in your like if we know people who are organizing in your city, we'll put you in touch. If you don't know anyone in your city and area who's organizing for Black Lives Matter school, we will get you going, right? We will help support you and get that going too. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of resources out there and to just take a look at it all. And there's, yeah, there's tons of great material and and lots of people who are willing to to come in and talk. We have like right now our team in New York City, um, they're doing some trainings at some schools for some PTAs who have questions. So that's what like the National Steering Committee is also available to do. Like we can send a representative or two come and talk and and, and talk to people like just like we did. And that's really helpful, I think, as well, too. Um, Lots of videos and podcasts, Haymarket Books, our publisher, all the webinars we've done, they're published and they're on their YouTube page. There's lots of information out there and lots of people from retired white teachers in North Carolina to, you know, teachers coming out of the teacher education programs who are ready to get started. We have like a huge network of people who are are making this happen. So um, please reach out with questions and and we'll be happy to to, to support you through this. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education podcast network a network of podcasts for educators by educators for more information visit
1: edupodcastnetwork.com that's edupodcastnetwork.com now can i listen to it